At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 532nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is growing food on top of a hospital. We're talking with Lindsay Allen about rooftop farming. Lindsay is a farmer and educator from Boston, Massachusetts. She has been farming for the past 10 years and managed farms in both rural and suburban locations around and outside the United States. She currently works with Higher Ground Farm and uh, as the operations director and as the manager of the 7,000-square-foot rooftop farm at Boston Medical Center. When Lindsay is not teaching or growing food, she can be found happily experimenting with fermentations, communing with chickens, spending time outdoors, crafting, sharing a good home-cooked meal with family and friends. Welcome to the show today, Lindsay. Are you ready to rock rooftop farming? Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure, yeah. How did I get up on a rooftop farm? (laughs) Um, (laughs) There you go. I I would say it was not where I predicted being. I as you mentioned, started farming 10 years ago, but I really, I grew up with a green thumb and a mom who was a gardener and who really valued outdoor time and healthy food. And so I think my path into farming really started then. And in fourth grade, my class went and lived on a farm for a week. I just absolutely loved the experience. And I I came back and I remember telling my mom that I was either going to be the first female president of the United States or I was going to be a farmer. And I'm really glad that I went the farming route. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, you know, I went to college for social work and kind of immediately after college jumped into farming via working in Panama and Costa Rica with Worldwide Opportunities for Organic Farms, just volunteering on farms and really fell back in love with the work and kind of worked my way from there to you know apprenticing, interning at different farms and then eventually managing farms and Mostly in the you know rural and suburban areas, and then about four years ago, I moved back to Boston, which is I'm from about 45 minutes north of Boston, and was really interested in working at the intersection of climate change and food justice and food access, and looking at really who gets to eat healthy local organic food and who has access to that and who doesn't. Before that, most of the farms that I've been working on were, you know, like a lot of our organic farms, most of the clientele are on the, you know, middle class to wealthier side of things and was really interested in how do we uh, make a more equitable food system. And so that's what drew me me kind of into the city. And then this job at Boston Medical Center up on the roof kind of fell into my lap and it just seems like a really interesting project that was tied into a much larger, like holistic approach to health 
and environmental stewardship at the hospital that I was really interested in being a part of. Wow. So I have several questions for you before we actually get into what a 7,000 square foot rooftop farm looks like on a hospital. And I know that you, yeah. you've studied permaculture and you have a permaculture design certificate. Yeah. Tell me about permaculture and how it interacts with what you do. And then I'd actually love for you to define permaculture for me. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I took my permaculture design course seven or eight years ago. And I actually first came across the permaculture design manual at one of the farms that I was working at in Panama and Costa Rica. And to me, I had this kind of aha moment where I felt like permaculture brought in these two worlds of of how do we create systems that feed people and feed the environment in healthy ways. And to me, permaculture is a design science that's based on natural patterns that we can replicate here in our human system. So it's really looking to nature and nature's patterns to learn from and how to design our human settlements and our human lives in more ecologically sound and regenerative ways. And so to me, and for farming, it's been really helpful in terms of just like constantly thinking of like, how, all right, how do I think as an ecosystem? How do I keep the bigger picture? Um, how do I look to constantly looking to nature as my kind of rough point, and my, my guide, and how to do things in a more regenerative and more ecologically sound way? Since, you know, nature, I always say, has been doing, you know, millions of years of research and development on how to live the most low you know, low carbon footprint and the most just way on this world. And we have a lot to learn from the way that nature patterns itself. Amen to that. Yeah. And so I'm a big fan of permaculture. I teach a few times a year, teach permaculture design courses, um, and then try to, you know, weave it into as many parts of my life as I can. Let's talk about a word you used for a moment. You said regenerative. What's that mean? Yeah, I know. It's a word that's getting used more and more and hopefully is not going to lose its actual meaning. To me, regenerative is, if we look at sustainability, that's sustaining things is kind of keeping them the same. And regenerative is actually, in the farming context, is like, how are we actually making, if we're looking at a piece of land, how are we actually making this better by our um, interactions with it? So it's actually an active process of building and creating life instead of just maintaining it. So my aim with farming, or it's a little bit different in a rooftop context, but with farming and life is like, how are we creating more life, right? That's regenerative is actually continuing, not just continuing, but then building on and creating pathways for more life to exist. Nice. A rooftop farm, 7,000 square feet on top of a hospital. That's got to be like a first well, it was the first for me. It's the first rooftop farm that's owned by a hospital in New England, and we're the largest rooftop farm in Boston. And there are other rooftop for- farms in Boston. There are, yeah. There's a few. Uh, Fenway Park actually has a rooftop farm on it that is similar design. It's smaller than ours. Higher Ground Farm had the first rooftop farm that started about seven years ago on the Boston Design Center, and um, we've since then taken that down because they had to redo the roof. And there are a few other smaller, there's wow. a Whole Foods that has a rooftop farm. There's a few other smaller rooftop farms in Boston. And it's definitely, I would say, gaining a lot of popularity, especially with other hospitals. We at Higher Ground Farm have been in contact with almost every other major hospital in Boston who are interested, at least toying with the idea of what it would look like to replicate this model at their hospital. I think people are realizing that 
A, we need to get more creative in how we're feeding people in cities and right. that in a, hosp- in a hospital, it's that food actually does matter and that food is medicine and that integrating that into your physical building as part of your programming makes a lot of sense. And Boston Medical Center is definitely leading the way in doing that, whereas a lot of other hospitals are, I find, kind of dragging their feet and which rightfully so in terms of hospitals have so much daily need right in front of them on the Mm -hmm. day-to-day that it can be hard to sometimes think lift your head up a little bit and think longer term or do more of the wraparound care, which Boston Medical Center is really good at doing that. Nice. So this is actually really exciting because most of my interactions with hospitals and their food, the hospital's food is pretty bad. Right? I know. (laughs) So this is pretty dang cool. I always find it really ironic that that the hospital food, like hospitals are known for having terrible food. It's when, and that's really the time in our life when we are in, because we're ill or having a treatment or surgery that we need to be nourished and we need healthy food. And that doesn't make sense that we would be serving terrible food within our hospitals. And so BMC really understands that and has done a lot, not only just with the farming, but in terms of where and how they source their food. Um, it's pretty phenomenal. And they're definitely leading in that area. Wow. That's outrageously cool. So I'm coming to your place and I'm standing at the entrance of a 7,000 square foot farm on a rooftop on a hospital in Boston. What do I see? What's it look like? Yeah. So you're walking down the stairs and you're looking out over a rooftop. We're about three stories up and we chose a lower roof because we wanted to have visual access for a lot of our patients. So across the street, you would look across the street and you'd see this big tall building that is all glass-backed, and that's where a lot of the hospital's main clinics are. So people, when they're in their waiting room or walking the hallways, can just look out onto the farm, which is really neat. And so the farm itself, you'd look out and see a sea of greens. If it's August, you'll see a lot of red with tomatoes. The the roof itself is 7,000 square feet, and then we're growing on about 2,400 square feet of that is the actual physical growth space. Mm -hmm. And it's all actually, it's a RAM system, which is made up of milk crates, which at first I completely was not into the idea. I was like, we can't actually grow a substantial amount of food in milk crates. This is ridiculous. (laughs) I had no faith in the system. And then I, I worked with uh, Recovered Green Roof were the main kind of designers and installers of the farm. And they had been doing studies of rooftop farming. There's basically three ways that it can look in terms of food production. You have open media style, which is you're literally putting soil on a roof and it looks like you, in essence, could be on the ground. You're shaping your rows and having mounded soil. So that's open media. You're having, or you're doing raised beds or doing like a milk crate system. And they had been doing tests on all three of these and found that actually the most productive out of the three systems was the milk crate system. And it's nice because it's considered a temporary structure. So you can, you know, milk crates have handles on them. It's very portable. We set the whole farm up in about six hours, not including like the fine tuning, you know, of like irrigation and stuff. But it can go up really fast. It can also be broken down really fast. And I think that's appealing to institutions or places that are wanting to put a rooftop farm but are maybe having commitment issues or are scared (laughs) of like you know you know putting a huge amount of soil just on your roof can feel like a huge project and it can be a lot harder to set up a lot harder to break down and i like the the easy the ease of this system and the scalability you can have it can really grow like expand and contract in a way and i like it because people come up to the farm 
And although we have, you know, 2,400 milk crates, they could easily see like, oh, I could have five of these at my house mm-hmm. and be growing food. And so it's, it's, there's a replicability that I like about it that feels doable for a lot of the people that come to the farm. Oh, yeah. Wow, for sure. So how much produce is generated annually? I mean, like, are you growing a couple of pounds? We're growing between like five and six thousand pounds um, a year, and it that and that's on it ends up being like the square footage is like a sixteenth of an acre, and a lot of that's in like leafy greens. So it's not, of course, like weight's not always the best quantifier of it, but mm-hmm. per square foot for a sixteenth of an acre, five to six thousand pounds is a pretty good amount that's of food coming off of the roof. Outrageous. I definitely, yeah, it's it's highly productive. I definitely push it as far as I can and, you know, do a lot of rotating and successional plantings throughout the season to just max out and use the space to its, you know, fullest capacity. Wow. And what are you doing with two to 3,000 pounds of produce? It's so five to 6,000 pounds of produce and about half, like 60% of it goes to our on-site food pantry. So inside the hospital, we, all our patients are screened for food insecurity. And if they're found to be food insecure, they get a subscription to this in, the in-hospital food pantry. And it was the first in-hospital food pantry in the country. It was started about 20 years ago. Wow. and. So they serve hundreds of people every week. So our produce is just, you know, a small percentage of what they serve there. So that's where a lot of our food goes. Then um, about 30 to 40% of it goes to our kitchens. And then from there to the cafeterias or to the patient plate. And then we have an in-hospital affordable farmer's market that happens once a week. And then we also have a teaching kitchen. So the teaching kitchen, the food pantry, and the farm are part of what's called Nourishing Our Communities. And our three programs are uh, pretty tied in and are you know, aimed at addressing uh, food insecurities and really going deeper into Boston Medical Center's uh, belief that food is medicine and getting healthy food to their patients. Wow. I, have, uh, I love asking this question, and it's kind of coming out of left field, I'll warn you up front. But okay. I want you. To, I want you to think back. How long have you been there? Um, I'm almost four years now. Wow! So think back over the last four years. Was there an interaction with somebody, a recipient, or of some of the food, or a visitor at the hospital that had you say, "Oh my gosh, this is why I'm doing this"? Do you have one of those? Mm. Yeah, I I feel like I'm really lucky in that I've had a, a lot of those, especially in the, the realm of doing when we do tours for people, there's so many kind of aha moments and, and people coming up there and just being like, I feel so relaxed. Um, <laughs> nice. And, but I would say like one thing that really touched me and made me really grateful for what I'm doing and just a reminder that it, I am in the right place was last year, the farmer's market, there was a patient who I'm guessing he's probably in his mid to late seventies and Every week he was there waiting before I got there. He had his, you know, air machine. He was on a ventilator and he was there and he would wait. He said he waited usually one to two hours after he'd already had his appointment. He'd wait one to two hours so he could come to the farmer's market and get fresh, affordable produce. And then he would go home. And so to be greeted by him every week, because he was always the first person there. And he also like grew food at his house too. So we talked gardening. And to me, it was like, what an honor to be, to have someone wait, you know, an hour or two after their appointment really was just heartwarming and a reminder that like there is, there are people who value this food and who need this food too. 
and so I've, yeah, I feel lucky that I have um, a fair bit of interactions that are similar to that and a lot of validating moments for this work. Wow, no kidding. So it, it occurs to me that the crate system, the melt crate system might not work in some environments. So we live here in Phoenix, Arizona. Growing things on rooftops is quite problematic because of the heat. Do you suspect that the milk crates would work better in Boston than they would in Phoenix. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. I would say I would worry yeah, a lot about overheating and then just drying out. Cause I find even here, they the, especially the edges, the edge crates do tend to dry out. And I think it makes a lot more sense in, yeah, a little bit more of a moderate climate like Boston and the Northeast or Midwest, as opposed to once we start to get yeah, into yeah, Arizona or parts of California and stuff. It's not to say that it couldn't work, but I, I think you would you would definitely see a reduction in productivity and you'd be, I think, having a little bit more of an upward battle with things. Yeah. And what kind of challenges have you faced with this project? I will say that, honestly, I've been really lucky and have feel like I've had very few hiccups, but some of the challenges have just been, you know, working with the kitchen here in terms of products showing up to them from the farm that maybe don't normally look like how they're used to receiving things and maybe taking a little bit of extra time to process and then me being able to grow enough food in terms of like quantity to make it worth time since they're feeding so many people every day. Mm-hmm. So the, I would say just working out logistics and flow and uniformity of product for the kitchen has been like an onward going kind of struggle and things that we work on and try to improve each year. And then like, I mean, things sound so silly, but like last year, I had major slug issues. Like, it be, you, with the farm, I kind of naively was like, oh, it's on a rooftop. There's not going to be pest issues. <laughs> right. But, you know, like nature has its way. If you create an environment, things will come. Right. And also, you know, bringing in transplants from greenhouses, you can't control it. And last year was like the rainiest season I've ever experienced. You know, we were getting like two inch rain events. It felt like almost every other week. Wow. So it just created a very, very wet environment. And that is, that I guess leads me to like what I would say the overarching kind of struggle that I've with this system is that it's new and trying to make, there's no like handbook on how to do this kind of rooftop farming. And so like nutrient management and soil management have been a struggle for me and like not leaching out nutrients and not being able to like control rain events. And, and since you're working with milk crates, there are these tiny little kind of microclimates and like, how do you maintain soil health and like a living, you know, like microbial network within these little microcosms. So that's been an ongoing struggle that I definitely have not I, was, I still have a lot to learn in that area, and I'm still trying to figure out the best way to approach so, soil health. We work with Vermont Composting Company, who is wonderful, and so they do a compost-based soil blend, which was really important to me to be working with like a compost-based uh, soil blend as mm-hmm. opposed to just like a normal potting mix that doesn't actually have like living soil in it. And so they're wonderful. We work with them. Um, I've been experimenting with cover, like overwintering and doing cover crops on the farm and things like that, but with... Yeah, the milk crate systems are hard in terms of like long-term soil health and keeping it healthy. I'd say that's probably my biggest kind of struggle yeah. I've had on the farm. Yeah, exactly. Wow. When well, and, and nutrients being washed out, the fertilizers being washed out of the milk crates when you have a two-inch event that that could be pretty significant. Yeah. Yep. It can be. And so, yeah, I've definitely been working on like how do we increase like the organic matter in the soil and water holding capacity. 
and, you know, doing things with mulches and cover crops and really planting really intensely in the crates. So there is a lot of water holding capacity. But then you have, yeah, rain events that I've never seen anywhere outside of the tropics Mm -hmm. happening every few weeks. That I think that's, you know, part of living in this new climate crisis that Mm -hmm. we are is and we have these extreme weather events that are outside of our predictability. And so I'm trying to think and and design around these extremes and, and try to be more planned and ready for these extremes. Right. Wow. And how does your involvement in the project, how does it make you feel? It makes me feel, I feel excited to be a part of the project. It for a few reasons. One is that in Boston, and I think in the U.S. in general, we're at this exciting time with urban farming and with rooftop farming specifically, where we're seeing so much increased interest in it. And in the face of climate change and where we're at in terms of feeding people, we're needing to get really creative in how we do mm-hmm. that. And to me, that's where it's very exciting to be able to be a part of that and especially to be a part of rooftop farming and being kind of on the cutting edge of that. And I feel very excited to be working with institutions, specifically hospitals and leveraging these institutions, you know, our anchor institutions, our hospitals, our universities to do better by the people they serve and use their power in a way that is regenerative and that is actually contributing to the environment in a positive way, contributing to our communities in a more holistic way. And I think Boston Medical Center is a really great example of how you can do that. So I feel really just grateful to be a part of it. I feel excited. There are definitely lots of days of frustration because it's being a part of something that's new there and there isn't a kind of playbook to go by and there aren't I don't feel like I have a lot of peers in rooftop farming that I can go to that it can there is actually like this I sometimes call it like it's like the golden tower I feel like I'm on this farm that's beautiful and like it's been gotten so much attention and sometimes it's just me up there and there's no other you know team member and there's not like a troubleshooting team that we can really go to of like okay like how do we do this and I miss that part of farming, I think, in terms of more the communal team aspect um, of it and being a part of, the, I mean, part of a larger, you know, organic farming movement. But the rooftop piece itself is so new that, that I think that that can be challenging and also, you know, an opportunity. And there's a lot of excitement. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. That is so cool. It's, uh, I'm so excited for you. Congratulations. Thank you. So I'm going to shift on you, and I would like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Yeah, so I would say I try not to frame failures as failures, because I think of them as just like information and ways of learning, and that's life, and if we aren't failing, then we usually, I mean, we usually aren't really actually learning. I think that's where a lot of like the deeper lessons are. I'd say in terms of like the rooftop context, the a failure I had kind of in the beginning was just, I had this idea of like what crops I was supposed to be growing and should be growing. I grew a ton of green beans the first year. I, I was so excited to be delivering them to the hospital and I got there and they're like, oh, we definitely can't use this. And I was really kind of surprised. And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, we're used to having all of our green beans arrive with, you know, their ends snapped off and are on both ends. And I can't afford to have the time it would take to process all of these. And so 
luckily we have the food pantry, so I could just bring the green beans over to the food pantry. But it was a good lesson in like, okay, A, I need to be in better communication with my kitchen about, about what they're, I'm making assumption of like, oh, if I grow it, they'll be able to use it. When really like they're incredibly busy and making tons of amazing food for people and don't have time to do a lot of these like micro adjustments for the seasonal like local food that I'm growing. So what can I do on my end to make their life easier? And I think that that's like a good lesson also in terms of like if we look at our food pantry, you know, the reason we attached the hospital attached a kitchen teaching kitchen to it is like we can give people food, but if they don't know how to cook it, then what and then they aren't actually eating it, then what are we actually doing? So having the teaching kitchen associated with that. Um, and so I think of that as like on a kind of similar level there. And so, I mean, it's like such a micro failure, but in general, I just try to think of failures as information of like, how do I then grow from that and take that into consideration? And then how do I actually design in feedback loops that tell me closer to the time of that failure too? Excellent. That, that, that is a really valuable thing for anybody growing food that they're giving away or selling. And that is the you know, who's receiving it and what can they do with it? Right, right. Because we think like, oh, I've grown the food, so therefore it has importance or therefore it already has a place or value. And it's like it it does to some people, but actually how do you make it more accessible to people and that just growing the food isn't often enough. Like there needs to be thinking of how and where and who is using it and in what way. What do you consider your biggest success? I mean, I think if I look at like my life as a farmer, if I like zoom out to that level, I would definitely think of this project at Boston Medical Center as my biggest success. And I guess success can be interesting to think of like how we measure that. But if I look at it in terms of like impact, in terms of people who have been impacted by the work, and I go and I think of that in terms of beyond just food, right? I'm talking about like the weeks of summer camps that we do for kids. And then there's like thousands of people who have come on the farm and hopefully have like some gear switches of like, oh, like this is like something that's possible. Like all of these acres of rooftops that we have in cities are actually valuable spaces that we can utilize to grow food and just like hopefully making some switches for people to think more creatively about how we address these food issues that we have in cities. And so I would say that like yeah, this project, I would consider probably my biggest success in terms of you know, larger work. But then I also think it's like every day is like surviving in a capitalist society. <laughs> so there's like the day-to-day successes and then there's like the bigger successes in life. And I would definitely call this project a success. Nice. And what drives you? There's a few things that drive me. I would say I feel I've always been someone that has felt really drawn to working with and for people, but then also feel really called to work for and with the environment. And so to me, if I can, farming is like kind of the intersection where I can be doing work that is healthy for the planet and healthy for people. That's definitely a big motivation to me is like, how do we, I'm really interested in like, how do people, we help people to reconnect with those things that sustain them. It's like food, water, shelter, community. And I think that in urban spaces, it can be so easy to disconnect from those things that sustain us. Mm-hmm. And that farms can be this place where that can happen, where we can reconnect with a lot of our roots, a lot of those, just those basics that we've lost touch with in terms of how to actually sustain ourselves in a good way. So I feel really motivated just by what that's meant in my life and how to help 
bring that into other people's lives. And I feel pretty motivated by the climate crisis. Um, I also feel very distraught about the climate crisis right now, but it also is a highly motivating factor for me in terms of of my work of like, how is this impacting climate change? How is uh, my daily life and you know the, the farm and the work of the hospital impacting and being an example to a more resilient, climate-appropriate way of, of farming and, you know, having and, grow, and being a part of a food system in a city. So those are some of, like, what drives me. And then also just observing inequities in, in, within our cities and looking at who has access. And I was, I'm lucky enough to have grown up in a very, you know, privileged white family and had a lot of access and have continued to have a lot of access throughout my life to the resources I need to sustain myself. And so I'm very driven to share that wealth and to help kind of level that playing field in a way that is can be hard to do, especially in Boston or really in any city. But that that access, food access and inequities around around that are very motivating for me. And I, I would say, too, that I'm really interested in what, not only, like, what is farming and urban gardening, but like what are all of the things that we can support around that, that so that more people are able to do urban gardening and participate in urban farming. And so I try to be as active as I can in, like, housing inequities and, you know, immigration issues and transportation issues, like, all of these things that are people that make it impossible for people to care about urban gardening or care about urban farming. So I really think that we need to, if we want to be like true urban gardeners and urban farmers, that we need to actually be looking at what are all the systems around urban gardening and urban farming that don't allow people Mm. to actually engage in these systems. Right. Wow. There's, uh, there are homeowners associations in the state of Arizona where it is not legal to grow food in your yard. Oh, I've heard that. It's so terrible. It Do they is. actually like follow up on that and like you'll get cited or for the, doing that? Yeah. Oh, I've I've wow. I took a I took a, th- a run at the state legislature about uh, I'm going to say ten years ago to see if we could get that adjusted. And basically, what I was told was you're going to be up against the HOAs, which is a powerful, powerful system, and good luck with that. <laughs> Wow. So, right. Wow. Wow. So good good on you for uh for doing what we can in that arena because that's so important. If you could it can be hard. Yeah, yes it can. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Yeah. It's so hard to just recommend one. Right? I would probably probably say Farming While Black by Leah Penniman. Oh yes. Um it's a wonderful book. She's one of my total food heroes. She's a farmer. She's an activist. She's an author. She's a speaker. She's part of Soul Fire Farm. And it's really a super practical handbook. Like you can use it for like literally learning how to grow food in urban and more suburban locations too. And what I appreciate about it is there's so much social justice education woven Mm -hmm. into it. So really giving a lot of context to like, why do we have, you know, 
parts of our cities that don't have access to food and a lot of the inequities within our systems and looking at systemic racism and how that plays into our food systems and who has access and who doesn't. Um, So it feels like it's a really holistic approach to farming book. And then there's just like really helpful practical knowledge in it. And I feel like it's written in a really soulful, like heart-centered way that I really appreciate. So I love that book. Yay. Well, Leah Penniman is a rock star. She was actually our... Uh, guest on episode 414 on the Urban Farm podcast uh, just about a year ago. So it was Oh, I missed that. I'll have to go back and yeah, listen to that. Yeah, she was she was amazing. It was great to have her and be really smart person. I was yeah. Yeah. I can't say enough great things about that. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? It's hard to give one advice. I I would say that in terms of growing food in urban spaces, like just go out and do it. We need to plant food wherever we can. But that really what we, I believe, ultimately need is we need people who are, as I kind of mentioned before, like how are we actually uh, pressuring our institutions, policy, government side of things to do better in terms of making food more accessible and farming and gardening in urban spaces more accessible to more people. And so, you know, we all go to a hospital or we all, you know, work at a company or business or organization and asking them to do better. What can they do? Where are they getting their food from? Where are they, um, do they have space to have a garden for their employees or to grow their own food? And to really put more pressure on our institutions and our governments and to try to work uh, I think a more systemic level of within our food systems is really important and to not just be, it's, I think it's wonderful for us to grow food and we all should be able to grow food. But if we are only doing that and not looking to actually change the systems of inequities within our cities, then we will never succeed at having a robust food system in our urban spaces. Wow. Amen to that. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Yes. So they could, there's a few ways. They can follow me on Instagram. My handle is Rooftop Farm Lady, or they can follow Higher Ground Farm um, on Instagram, which is Higher Ground Farm is the handle. They could also check us out our web on our website, which is highergroundrooftopfarm.com. Or they can also go to the Boston Medical Centers has a whole page on nourishing our communities. And there's a lot of resources and articles and videos from the farm on the Boston Medical Center website as well. Wow. And I just don't want to do a shout out to Boston Medical Center for actually taking this on. Good on them for being a leader in this process. Yeah, thanks for that. They're, they are wonderful. I completely admire what they're doing. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash rooftop Lindsay. Awesome. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule, and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed 
or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.